0: Well, good morning. Uh, You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11 if you have them with you. The verses will be on the screen as we get there in just a moment. And as you find your place in Mark 11, I want to remind you uh, that this is what we uh, traditionally call Holy Week. Uh, This week and so we're going to be uh, taking some time uh, to really focus in on uh, who Christ is and what that means for us and church. So we invite you to join us on Friday evening for our Good Friday services at 515 and 630 and uh, we will be uh, focusing in on him and significance of his uh, crucifixion and specifically just really taking time to reflect on what Christ went through that evening and we'll be celebrating Uh, and remembering communion as well. And then, of course, Sunday is Easter Sunday, and so uh, we're excited to celebrate, as we do every Sunday, the resurrection, but probably with a few more of our friends in the community next Sunday. So we will have three services, as always, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11 o'clock. A traditional service at 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11 o'clock will be contemporary worship. There are no life groups, and so we are asking everyone uh, that can to serve, whether that's on our our greeting. greeting team, connect team, and children's ministry, um, and the worship choir uh, in different places. And so uh, we'd love for you to be here and be a part of that and encourage you to invite uh, friends. If you're here today as a guest because someone invited you or maybe you're checking us out online for the first time, I just want to say to you uh, that we are, as a church family, grateful to have you with us, and we would love to know who you are. You can text connect uh, to the number that you see on the screen, and one of our connect team members will follow up with you this week week, or if you're with us on campus, you can stop by the welcome table, uh, excuse me, the welcome desk or one of the welcome tables on your way out this morning, and our team there would love to get to know who you are. I would also encourage you to attend our Discover Bayshore lunch today. It follows the 11 o'clock service. It'll be right around 1215 in our fellowship hall. Uh, Even if you haven't signed up yet, you're welcome to drop in, get a free lunch, and hear who we are as a church. All right, well, we are in Mark 11, and we will be looking closely at verses 15 through 19 this morning. These verses are often not looked at slowly and are therefore misunderstood and do not have the impact that they should have on our lives. So let's dive in. Mark 11, verse 15 says, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Let's first talk about the setting here. Jesus enters the temple again for the second day in a row, and money changers are present in the temple. Every Jewish male 20 years or older was required to pay an annual half-shekel temple tax for the upkeep and function Of the temple. Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16, instruct this for the people of Israel. The daily sacrifices for atonement of sins were funded through this tax. The tax was about two days' wages for the common man, or the equivalent of two to $300 today. The temple refused foreign coins, which would have pagan symbols on them, and those coming from outside of Judea, therefore, had to exchange their money to pay the tax. The practice of exchanging this money for a modest fee was eventually started. Scholars suggest that by the time of Jesus, some of these money changers were charging 10 to 15% for this exchange, which for the poor who were just trying to make ends meet for their family and honor God would be a burden because they had to pay an additional 30 to $45 on top of their tax. There were also people selling pigeons in the temple. Doves or pigeons were used for several purposes in the temple. Most notably, they were used by the poor for the sin offering if they were unable to afford a lamb or a goat. People would sell them to those who were traveling to Jerusalem. But scholars suggest that the markup on these birds was very high. Once again, something that was a burden for the poor who really had no other option if they wanted to obey God in this manner. So a poor person who does not live in Jerusalem or Judea is coming to obey God, to worship him, and they're being taken advantage of as they exchange their currency for the shekel that was accepted by the temple. And then their money doesn't go as far because price gouging is taking place on these doves and pigeons that they need to use to obey God. So a system that had been created initially to help them, they're now being taken advantage of by. You ever found a good rate at a hotel only to then find out that they charge a resort fee? Now it's a little more transparent than it used to be, but it used to be hard to find out about these fees until you actually got to the hotel, got to the resort, And what are you going to do now that you're already there, you've already made these plans? Well, imagine this feeling, except it's after you have made the obligatory journey to honor God and remain loyal to your nation. And in addition to this injustice, the whole thing, which was created to be this sacred, worshipful experience, had become commercialized and touristy. Commentary Edward Schweitzer says that a single merchant actually once offered three thousand sheep for sale in one day. You see, there was really a business of worship, a business around the temple. I, 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 if you've ever been to, you know, a touristy area, Panama City or you know, Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge, you see how, like all these as seen on TV stores, right? And um, it really begins to kind of be a racket, a trap. And so I can imagine there was all these as seen in the temple or as seen in the Old Testament, you know, stores that popped up. And so Jesus, when he walks in, famously puts a stop to this. Now verse 16 implies that Jesus didn't storm off after, you know, turning over the tables, But he stays there to prevent the business of the temple. Verse 16 says, and he, that's Jesus, would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So Jesus is actually enforcing the dignity that attaches to his father's house. Jesus is saying to the people, hey, you're not just going to walk through here. This isn't a cut through. This isn't the front entrance to the mall or whatever to get through to the back. This is The temple. I think we need to take note of Jesus's actions here. I want to point out two things that are secondary to the point, but need to be acknowledged because they are where most people focus. The first is this, we dare not equate meekness with weakness. Jesus was gentle. Jesus was meek. Jesus was Humble, Jesus would give his life at the hands of Romans and Jewish leaders, but Jesus was not weak. And God has called us to meekness. God has called us to humility, but that is because God has called us to strength. That is because God has promised us victory. That is because we do win. And that meekness is an approach towards people out of a view of the victory that we have in Christ. And that meekness is not meant to give in to things being the way of the world or the way of corrupt religion. And so one thing that I try to live by and I fail at miserably, but I seek to be is firm but gentle, firm but gentle. That is what God has called us to and that is what Christ demonstrates here. Now, the other thing I want to say is this, Jesus turns over tables, right? And Jesus does something like this once, maybe twice in his ministry Don't live a life of turning over tables. Hey, people who watch Fox News, don't be so angry all the time. Don't always try to disrupt everything. And don't use Jesus' one, maybe two times he did that in his life as the reason you're constantly like that. If you are not gentle, you do not imitate Christ. If you are not approaching people with humility, with a posture of listening, if you approach people with anger all the time, if you approach people with antagonism all the time, you are not imitating the Christ we follow. Don't live life turning over tables. And if you just have anger in your hearts towards people and you are quick to anger all the time, then you need to ask God why. And you probably need to ask a few people why. Honestly, though, we focus so much on Jesus doing this that we really miss the point. Because verse 17 says that Jesus was teaching them. So he did this, as Jesus often does, to reinforce a teaching. He was teaching them is that actually in the imperfect tense in the Greek. So it implies that a period of teaching would ensue or was ongoing. You see, Luke says that Jesus taught daily in the temple. We know that Jesus goes back at least one more day, so that's three days that Jesus goes to the temple. And how this text is misapplied is that it is taught without focusing on what his teaching was. And his teaching was indeed the point of his actions. Jesus was very intentional. And so look at what verse 17 says. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus says, is it not written? So he's referring to what the Old Testament teaches. These are quotes here that Jesus gives from Isaiah chapter 56 and Jeremiah chapter 7. Now I didn't want to go back to these two texts because of the time it takes to go back to these two texts and because of your attention spans, I love you. But I'm being faithful to our text today. And I'm not being faithful to it if I do not teach what Jesus taught and explain what he meant. So I'm gonna refer back to Isaiah chapter 56 and Jeremiah chapter seven. Jesus says he My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. This is a reference back to Isaiah chapter 56, and I'll read verses 6 through 8 of Isaiah chapter 56. It says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You see, in the instruction that God has given to the people of Israel about sacrifice, there is. Instructions given to those who would be outside of the nation of Israel, those who would come from Israel. And so by the time of Jesus, there are Israelites who are living outside of Judea, and there are foreigners, people who are not of the nation of Israel, who then worship God, who, who believe in that God. And God says, This is my will that my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. That's why God gave prosperity to Israel. That's why God allowed for the construction of the temple. Was not as a nationalistic symbol, but rather as a place where people could have communion with the one true God. Jesus also says, but you have made it a den of robbers. He refers back to Jeremiah chapter 7. I'm going to read Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 1 through 15 to understand what Jesus is referring to when he says this. It says, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter the gates, these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adulteries, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring, Ephraim. Now, you could go on in Jeremiah chapter 7, but what you understand here is God is calling, he's, he's calling the people of Israel to repentance, who are going through the religious motions and who are presuming, because they are the people of God, that we don't actually have to be concerned with what God wants. And God says to them, remember what I did at Shiloh, that was the first permanent location of the tabernacle. And the city would eventually be destroyed by the Philistines in the battle of 1 Samuel chapter 4. And God says that he did this because the people of Israel were rebellious towards God. And God is now saying to the people of Israel in the Old Testament that I will once again allow that to happen because of your rebellion, because of the injustices that go on and the lack of concern ultimately for loving God and loving people. This would happen. Israel would, which was in captivity to the Assyrians at this time, probably thought it couldn't get worse, but they would eventually come under Babylonian rule. And the temple would be destroyed in 586 B.C. as Jeremiah said it would. Now as Jesus walks into the temple with Passover approaching 600 years later, he sees the money changers. He sees the pigeon sellers. He sees the market-like environment. And he claims authority over the temple and pronounces judgment and calls the people to repentance in the spirit of Jeremiah. Referring to these texts, I believe in the same spirit, he says, you may not think it can get worse, but because of what you have done, the temple will once again be destroyed. And it would be in 70 AD. While they may not have fully understood what Jesus was saying, the religious leaders understood enough to know that they didn't like what Jesus had to say. Mark tells us in verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. The chief priests, well, they're like the church staff. They had acquired a bit of power in this day. And that power is being threatened. The text literally tells us that they were afraid of Jesus. Why? Because the crowd was astonished and amazed at the teaching of Jesus. Jesus' growing popularity was threatening to those in his power, excuse me, in power in Israel. Matthew tells us in his gospel, chapter 21, verse 15 and 16, Then when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise, which is a direct quote of Psalm chapter 8, verse 2. The chief priests are like, hey, Jesus, do you hear that they're calling you the Messiah? That's blasphemous. And Jesus is like, yeah, God said they would call me that because I am that. And they don't like what's going on. And Luke tells us that they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on the words of Jesus. And so in the evening, the city gates would close, the crowds would leave, and Jesus left as well to return to Bethany. So why does this happen? Why did Jesus do this? What happened to show those present something And it was recorded for us to see that as well. What Jesus does is Jesus shows us that, three things that Jesus shows us. Number one, God's will is that all all people or that all people have a relationship with him. God's will is that all people have a relationship with him. It makes it very clear in the Old Testament that the purpose of the building of the temple was for all nations to come and worship Jesus. God created us to walk with him and know him. And so what God's will is for us and what God's will is for all people is that we would come to know him and have a relationship with him. And religious activity should facilitate this, not hinder it. Religious activity should facilitate this, not hinder it. Much of what Jesus teaches to the religious crowd is how religion in their day had become a heavy burden instead of easy access. And the reality that is exposed as we follow the teaching of Jesus is it's the corruption of power dynamics that have actually created this religious system that is a heavy burden for people. So Jesus shows us that God's will is that all people have a relationship with him and that religious activity should facilitate this, not hinder it, and that Jesus himself has authority over religion. That Jesus is the one who has ultimate authority over all religious function and religious activity. And these exchanges between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel provide a reminder for us to ensure that we do not lose sight of his purpose and they help us to see the grave mistakes of the possibility of our hearts being misaligned even as we continue to operate on religious paths. And as we discussed last week with the cursing of the fig tree and the pronouncement of the end of Israel being the means for building his kingdom, the purposes of God have always been having a people for himself. And that does not change. It has not changed. It has been multiplied. When Jesus spends his last days with the disciples, he gives them the great commission. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 Through 20, and Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says, my desire, the Father's desire for people of all nations to worship me continues. And when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, it says, "Jesus says to them, "Who do you say that I am?" And Simon Peter replied, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And Jesus answered him, "Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth." shall be loosed in heaven. The temple has been destroyed, but Jesus is building his church. The temple has been destroyed, but Jesus is building his church. If we look throughout church history, if we look throughout the history of God's people, throughout what we see in the revelation of scriptures in the Bible, that there are periods of destruction, judgment, failure, and God's, desire and promise that he made to Abraham and that he demonstrates in walking with Adam and Eve in the garden to have people for himself has always been true and God will never stop in that plan. And that's the picture we're given, the vision we're given in the book of Revelation of how we will spend eternity. So make no mistake, this is what God wants for us. So now I want to give you three things to be watchful of as we seek to be the church Jesus has called us to be. These are three things that I think are prompted from our text this morning that we need to be watchful of as we seek to be the church that Jesus has called us to be. And let me just say before I say these things, I hope that's your intent here. I hope that's your desire. What does God want for us? Let's do what God wants for us. And if that's true, then I think it causes us to recognize our need From this text, to not make the same mistakes that the people of Israel made and not to fall under the judgment of God that Israel fell under. So, here are those three things. Number one, we need to be watchful of leaders who take advantage of people instead of equipping people. Leaders who take advantage of people instead of equipping people. In the days of Jesus, religious leaders had become more concerned with their prosperity and the advancements of their agendas then they had God's agenda of people finding their peace in him. In the New Testament, Paul and the other writers warn of religious teachers who use people as a means to advance their own own causes instead of being servants of God. And today, Christianity, I put that in quotation marks intentionally, is plagued with leaders who are not looking to God for guidance and direction, but are creating or adopting ways of leadership That at first may have been well meaning, but are not sincere in their pursuit of God. Religion that is set up to create a dependence on called ones for intimacy with God, rather, whether it be the confession of sins or understanding of the Bible. This is a religion that leaves the average person who wants communion with God with feelings of guilt and dependence on go-betweens with God, when the Bible says there is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Or maybe it creates leaders who are charismatic and talented, and so their talks are encouraging and inspiring, but they don't actually give biblical understanding to people. I posted something like this on social media this week. I see a ton of attractive, usually wealthy speakers or influencers or whatever word you want to give rising in popularity. And they're saying generic things to people, like you're going to experience a breakthrough or you're about to go through a new season. Or while, and, and while these things make people who are going through trials, who want to achieve earthly success, feel better, and inspired, it actually leads people away from Jesus. And it leaves people who experience true pain with shallow, weak hope. While the gospel says that even if we suffer, even, even if we're going through difficult times, even if we don't see earthly success, Christ is our hope. And we know because of the cross of Christ that God is for us regardless of what we are going through. That's a deep-seated hope that feels better than a rah-rah cheerleading speech that says, you can do it. Believe in yourself. Don't believe in yourself. Believe in who God is and therefore what our value is in him. That's true value. That's the message we need to hear. Or maybe, like I saw on the TV the other day, once again, somebody was explaining the sowing of seeds. A woman with a lot of makeup or a guy with a bad haircut and probably a lot of makeup saying, if everybody just sent him a $1,000, the things that would come back to them are just absolutely beyond their understanding. And I think, yes, they are beyond their understanding. At least in that, they're being honest because it doesn't make any sense God doesn't call us to give so that we will get back more. He calls us to give because what he has given us is indescribable and something we can never pay back. We talk about giving here a lot because God talks about giving here a lot. And I hope that we will give and we will see the value that comes from giving to this local church. But let me just make something very clear. The reason that we give to God is because he has given us so much. It is a response to the cross of Christ and it is an adoration of God and saying, you can have at a bare minimum my first fruits because you deserve my whole life. That's why we give. Ephesians chapter 4 says, leaders are in the roles they are in because of the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. You see, a pastor or church leader is really trying to work themselves out of a job. You don't need me to hear from God. I pray that God gifts me with the spirit to help you hear from God, but I pray that more and more you're less dependent on coming to hear me and more and more in adoration of who God is on your own in the word. And I want you to have the tools to do that on your own. I hope that you feel the presence of God every day in your life, that you don't have to come into a building to feel that. God uses it in a special way, as we'll talk about in just a moment. But the reality is, God has called you. God has given you the same Holy Spirit that any pastor, any leader might have. You are not inferior. You do not have less access. You do not need us to validate you. You have the one who gives you everything that is Christ Jesus and his Spirit. And I pray that every life group leader and every pastor and every person you listen to is just a tool, just a help to help for you to be closer and closer in your personal walk with Christ. Number two, second thing we need to be watchful of is this, worship of God that allows idolatry and or injustice. Now let's just be very clear here that throughout the history of God's people, there has been worship and religious activity while ignoring the God who created it all. Israel in the Old Testament. God, I mean, if we went through the Minor Prophets a couple of years, and I felt like I needed a six-month vacation after going through the Minor Prophets because, man, they're just beat up because they just won't repent. They just won't get right and realize that you don't worship God if you don't care about people around you. That God isn't a means to your prosperity. God is a means to his glory. And when we glorify him, it changes our hearts to view other people differently. If we vertically have it right, then we horizontally have it right. And so Israel in the Old Testament Could not get that. And Israel in the New Testament, even though they were in submission to the Romans and had been in submission to the Persians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the the Assyrians, still thought God needed to make them this powerful earthly nation to accomplish his purpose. And they couldn't view people through the lens of the kingdom of God. They only viewed people through the lens of the kingdom of Israel. And this is expressed today in that we would think that we as Americans are better than people in other nations. And we think the only way God can accomplish his plan is by us being stronger. There is no guarantee that America will even be a nation in 50 years. And so we must put our allegiance to our country in that perspective. And we have to care about all the nations. If we are the people of God. There are churches that we allow materialism to exist And greed to exist and capitalism to go unchecked while we worship God and reject the poor and ignore the poor. We have people who have spiritual experiences without really connecting with who God is. And so the ultimate question I I, I have for us as, as this church, as this body of believers, is this allowing us, enabling us, facilitating us, becoming more like Christ? That's the question of our worship of God. Are we becoming more like Christ? Take note of something Matthew says about this exchange that Jesus has in the temple. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 14, it says, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, the law actually restricted those who are blind or lame, among other things, from entering into the court of priests. But... People saw the blind and lame as lesser than them and they wouldn't even allow them into the places in the temple that it was okay for them to be. And you know what Jesus does with them in the temple? He heals them. He heals them. Their religion had caused them not to see people. Do you know why you're still here on earth, Christian? People. That's why God has left you here. You're gonna be a better worshiper more moral, better at all the things when you're in heaven. But God says, I still want you here on earth for people. In our pursuit of God, we cannot take our eyes off of people because our our pursuit of God has become misdirected if it is. And so if God isn't causing growing the love for us and other people, it's misdirected. And we must be watchful of a worship that allows that kind of idolatry or injustice to exist. Last thing we must be watchful of is this. Worship gatherings with a purpose other than communion with God. Communion, a definition, is the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when it, the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. And we understand that what communion is when we use that word is that that's growing in intimacy with God and it's us growing in intimacy with each other as people of God. When we begin to see the worship gathering as something other than this, we are missing the heart of God and the point of church. Some things that I hear that I think lose sight of this, the purpose of this, I'm just gonna share three things, I could list 100, is one is a sentiment, sentimentalism. Where we think the purpose of coming together is just remembering the good old days and, and we can't worship if it doesn't remind us of the good old days. And there's nothing wrong with having a fond memory of the past, but the reality is all memories of the past must lead us to the present and the future. Because we have a present and we have a future. I love what I've heard Bob Calhoun and I've heard Mary Wright say this as well about praying for our legacy generation is may our dreams for the future be bigger than our memories. May they be. Another thing I've heard people say is that we gather on Sunday morning. The purpose of the church is for the non-Christian. That's why we have a worship service and so everything we must do must be to reach non-Christians. Look, we care about non-Christians But the worship gathering is not for the purpose of reaching the non-Christian. It's for the purpose of equipping the Christian to go and reach the non-Christian. That's what this is for. That's why we do what we do. In fact, in the New Testament, it says that non-Christians came and they were confused about what was going on. But they saw the power of God as things were done in order and they fell on their face in worship of God. Eric Gustafsson says it best, worship is the goal of evangelism and evangelism is the fruit of worship. That is to say that the reason we are evangelistic is we realize people don't worship like we do, but the reason we, when we worship, what should produce is evangelism. Jason Duke said this when he was here preaching during our Live Sense series, maybe the reason the world doesn't see their need for the gospel is because we don't show them why we need the gospel. So that doesn't mean we gather together and we focus on how good we are and just on knowledge, we're reminded of Christ and how dependent we are on him. And I'll say, I'll say one more thing that church services become and that's consumeristic. Where we just, church is all about all these activities and these social functions and, and I just mean this in love. This isn't the Rotary Club or Kiwanis or whatever you wanna call it. This is the people of God seeking His face and trying to obey Him and spur one another towards love and good works. And I want a children's ministry that is fun, but this isn't Chuck E. Cheese. This is disciple making. And I, I, I think we're continually striving towards excellence in our music and our production elements, but this isn't the Firefest concert or the Grand Ole Opry. Look. You can find a group of people that is good with whatever your desire for church is. And I could talk about so many things here. I'll just say this, leaders, just because people are buying it doesn't mean we should sell it. Because leaders and all the people of God most primarily need to be concerned with what does God say about what we are doing. And here is why we come together. Because it reminds us of who we are. Who he is and who we are and therefore how we should respond. That's why we do church. The people of Israel had missed this. They missed this. Jesus stops the whole thing. Says this isn't what God wanted. And so may our Concern be communion with God and communion with others. And may God purge us of anything that is not that. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to go into an orphanage and, you know, children, I know we had a team that served in children crisis uh, last weekend and, I mean, anytime you go into any of these places, it really causes you to be aware. But if you go into one In some of our poorer countries or less developed countries, it's another experience altogether. I've been in one in India and as we got, it was a boy's home, about 140 boys there and we got in the car and I think I sobbed for an hour because they're just pushed aside in these societies and um, there's a story in one of Max Licato's books about uh, John Bentley uh, going to a Chinese orphanage for the deaf and mute. You see, China's one-child policy, which has just recently been amended, had a way of weeding out the weak. Males would be selected over females, and healthy babies outrank the unpaired. And Chinese children who cannot speak or hear stand little chance of a healthy, productive life. Everything they hear says you don't matter. And so when someone says otherwise, it resonates with them. And John Bentley describes this moment when he goes into a children's Chinese orphanage and uh, deaf orphans in the Henan Providence. Uh, They were given a Mandarin translation of a children's book by Max Licato entitled Your Special. And the story, the children's book, describes Poncinello, a wooden person in a village of wooden people. And the villagers would practice sticking stars on the achievers and dots on the strugglers. And this particular wooden person had so many dots that people gave him more dots for no reason at all. Just continually reinforcing that he was worthless. But then he met Eli. Eli was the one who made him and Eli affirmed him telling him to disregard the opinion of others. I made you. I don't make mistakes. And P- Punchinello had never heard such words and when he did his dots began to fall off. And John describes the moment when he read the story to these children in this orphanage. The most bizarre thing happened, he said. Everyone in the room started crying. He said, I could not understand this reaction because Americans are somewhat used to the idea of positive reinforcement, maybe to an unhealthy level, but not so in China, and particularly not for these children who are virtually abandoned and considered." Valueless by their natural parents because they were born broken. When the idea came through in the reading that they are special simply because they were created by a loving creator, everyone started crying, including their teachers. That's why we gather. So the broken, so the hopeless, So that the things that are being pumped into our brains about who we are and where we can find our value is pushed aside, even for just an hour, even, I preach long, even for just an hour and 15 minutes. And we remember, we are not mistakes. And the fact that we are still breathing is not a mistake. And God has a purpose for us. And God's purpose for us is that we would glorify him and we would live our life with his creation of us in mind and do with our lives what he has called us to do. You are loved, you are called, and you are empowered to walk in the ways of God. And may that be what our focus is on this morning. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for the opportunities we have to gather together as your church and be reminded that you are the creator. And not only did you create us, but God, you have interceded in human history the clearest revelation of God there is in Christ Jesus. And when we doubt our value, It's not religious activity, a religious leader, a pep talk that shows us our value. It's the cross. And when we doubt your power, it's not our numbers, it's not our argument, it's not earthly standards of success that show us our power, it's the resurrection. And so God, we gather together to proclaim Christ crucified and Christ risen. And that's where our worth is found. And so today, Lord, I pray that we would respond by A, if we've never trusted in you, trusting in you and realizing where our value is found and running to you and saying, we want to follow you. And then as those who have proclaimed that once, may we proclaim that every day. A gospel is not something we needed one time long ago, but it's something that needs to ring true in our hearts every single morning, every single hour. And God, as your church, that we would commit that that's why we gather, that's why we give, that's why we organize, that's why we do what we do, is so that Christ crucified and Christ risen would be proclaimed loudly to one another and to the world around us. So Lord, Lord, To you be the glory to this church family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.